Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Gathering Ground. Gathering Ground is a semi-weekly podcast where with each new episode, a special guest and I explore what it looks like to survive and thrive in nonprofit spaces. We also talk about work and foundations, and we focus on diversity, racial equity, and inclusion. Today, our special guest is Sean Thomas Breitfeld. Sean is co-director of the Building Movement Project, an organization whose mission is to develop research, tools, training materials, and opportunities for partnership that bolster nonprofit organizations' ability to support the voice and power of the people they serve. Prior to joining the organization, Sean spent a decade working in various roles at the Center for Community Change, and he also worked as a policy analyst at the National Council of La Raza. He holds a master's degree in public administration from NYU, and, and this I love because, of course, it references one of my favorite television shows, he has his bachelor's degree in social work and multicultural studies from St. Olaf College in Minnesota. And I have to say, that is not a place or necessarily a college that I would think about for multicultural studies. So I love that that is where you went for your undergrad work. And actually, we want to talk a little bit more about that. But please welcome Sean to Gathering Ground. Hi, Sean. Hey, yes, the St. Olaf uh, College does always get some notice on my resume. Absolutely. Come on. Are, we, are, are you not a Golden Girl fan? <laughs> I love the Golden Girls, although I, I have to admit, I'm not sure that I made the connection uh, when I was a kid applying to school. So. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, of course not. No, absolutely. Yeah. I can understand that. But <laughs> I mean, now to mention it, I was I like smiled. I had this of huge smile. I was like, you went to St. Olaf. It's incredible. OK, yeah. so let's jump right in, Sean. Um, let's talk about your your road to building movement project. Give us a, a sense of um, where you you started, even just a little bit about your background and how you grew up and how you came to nonprofit work and then sure. came to the work at Building Movement Project. Uh, so I grew up in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and I'm a double PK. Both of my parents are pastors and uh, in the Lutheran Church, so that sort of explains the St. Olaf College connection. Um, and yeah, you know, I think that being the son of ministers, uh, the sort of idea of working in the nonprofit sector, of working, having your career be about something different than making money. Uh, was normal to me. Uh, and so when I got to college, um, social work just seemed like the right program and fit because uh, you know, I was interested in politics. I was interested in policy issues. Uh, and I was also very often turned off by uh, the way that political science courses dealt with the issues that I cared about. Uh, which had to do with race, inequality, and poverty. Um, so that's also part of why I did the program in race and multicultural studies in college as well. So, but after college, I just got lucky and had an opportunity to take an unpaid um, fellowship for that first year out of college, working for a civil rights organization in D.C., and that just set my career on a course that I couldn't have um, anticipated. And uh, I had been a member of the advisory board for the Building Movement Project for a number of years. Uh, and then things shifted in terms of the organizational staffing structure. And the founder and my co-director uh, just asked me what I consider taking on this leadership role in the organization as a staff person. Uh, and it took some time to get used to the idea, but ultimately it felt like the right next step to take in my career. Well, I think it's interesting when you say it took some time. 
We, as you may know, do executive searches at Morton Group, along with uh, several other areas of work. However, when we are working with folks of color, what we sometimes notice is that there is this idea of um, really working with someone to make sure they understand that they, in fact, do have the skills and it is time for them to move up to the next level. Did you um, have any of those kind of conversations with yourself or with others? Yeah, it's really interesting. I, I think because um, in my whole professional career, I'd worked for organizations that were led by people of color. Even when I was an intern in college, uh, my social work practicum placement was in a Black-led social service organization. So I always knew that that was a path for a person who looked like me. Um, and still, you know, the things that I worried about when it came time to think about stepping into a much more senior leadership role for an organization was, well, can I really raise money? You know, like that level of the organizational management, even though I had studied management in grad school years before taking on this job, like those are the right. sorts of elements of um, questioning and self-doubt. Um, so it, I think in some ways it did have to do with my own um, understanding of some of the challenges that I would face as a person of color leading an organization, uh, because I had seen some of that. Uh, but I had also seen in my whole career, people of color, people who looked like me, people who didn't look like me, running big organizations and growing their organizations and leading staff to do uh, incredible work in communities and in the country. Well, it's wonderful that you had those models, uh, since as you know, uh, many of us don't have models where we've seen folks of color in leadership positions. And so sometimes it is hard for us to imagine ourselves in that role. And I think it's, uh, you mentioned one piece that I think is really critical. It's the fundraising piece. Um, it, it just, it becomes really a barrier to many of the uh, candidates or potential candidates that we're seeing for some of our positions that they really feel that they cannot do the fundraising piece. So on a, later edition of uh, Gathering Ground, we're certainly going to focus a little bit more on fundraising and, and folks of color. And as you may know, our first podcast was with Edgar Villanueva, who I know you know as well, and yep. talking about money, right? And us really needing to become more comfortable with money and talking about money. And this is all, as you know, wrapped up together with how people advance and nonprofits. So I want to now just come back to the work at at building movement project, how did so you you've already been you were already part of the advisory council, and then you transitioned yep. in, transitioned into a staff position. How has it been, and and how long has it been? I would say I think it's been. Have you been there for about six years? I've been in this co director role for six years. Yes. Okay, and tell us what it was like moving into that role, and and maybe some lessons learned that you know now that. You know, as you look back, you say, okay, I wish I had known that. Or if I were going to help sure. bring someone along, these are things I would keep in mind. Yeah, sure. So um, so I had been on the advisory board for four years, and now I've been in the co-director role uh, as a staff person for six years. So 10 years, a full decade of my life uh, committed to the organization. Um, and, you know, I think that in addition to having had uh, worked for organizations that were led by people of color, I think it's also important that I acknowledge that I've also had a lot of mentorship from both white people in the sector and people of color. And so Frances, the founder of Building Movement Project, uh, is a white woman, and she had been a mentor of mine 
helping me think through and navigate my path in the late last few years that I was at the Center for Community Change. Um, and then when this opportunity opened up and she brought me into the Building Movement Project as her co-director, as her equal, um, you know, I think that that's also really important uh, acknowledgement of the kind of uh, mentorship and opening up of doors that I think white leaders also do for uh, younger people and people of color in the sector. So I think in terms of the transition from being a member of the um, our, what we call our project team, our advisory board, to being uh, in the co-director role, Francis and I um, brought in a coach for our partnership. And so before, you know, as we were even just discussing it and talking about what the job description might be, what the responsibilities might be, we worked with a coach to do that. Uh, and then in the first year, um, I think we had roughly quarterly meetings with the coach to just keep in contact about um, how the partnership was going. And um, we still work with that same coach six years later. Uh, the, the conversations are often a little Excellent. less about like our partnership and more about how we as leaders um, manage our growing staff team uh, and an increasingly complicated organization. Um, but you know, Sean, it's still been- Sean, how many staff do you have now that you're managing? Just so we have some context sure. for that. Yeah, so we're still a very small, very lean organization. Um, but, but at the national level, so for BMP's national work, all of our research and report writing, uh, we have two co-directors, we have a senior researcher, we have a senior advisor, we have a networking and learning manager, and then we have a communications and operations coordinator, and then we always have interns as well. Um, so right now we have a part-time intern who supports the research too. Okay, but still, great. it's still a pretty lean team. I think people are often surprised by uh, how lean the team is, given how much we how much we produce. Exactly, and the depth of the work that you're producing. Um, it's it's extraordinary to know that it is such a small team, but you're clearly being very efficient with your with your work. Um, so so we've heard a little bit about the setup. It's great to hear that uh, one from Francis, you've received uh, mentorship and you had this partnership and you had a coach. I think that's really important for people to hear that you have you looked external lead to the organization for some support and ongoing support. I think um, certainly, again, when we do executive searches, we really, um, we always want the new CEO or executive director to have an executive coach, certainly at least within the first year. But to your point, I think it can be really helpful to have on an ongoing basis mm -hmm. or to be able to pull in as needed. Absolutely. I think that's really important and, and speaks to this idea around talent investment, right? That we want to really stress with organizations, nonprofits, that we must invest in our nonprofit staff if we are are really going to take on the work that is needed um, because nonprofits are needed now more than ever. So let's go back to some of the actual work of the Building Movement Project. Talk about, I know about the research, but what about some of the other areas of work sure. for the Building Movement Project? So we have three main areas of focus. Uh, the first area looks at how direct service organizations can also do social change work and can incorporate those social change progressive values into the everyday ways that they engage um, constituents, clients, and their community. Uh, the second area of work is the leadership work, which is a pretty broad umbrella. Uh, a lot of the work initially um, 15 years ago was about 
uh, some of the generational tensions that we're playing out in nonprofit organizations, always with a race analysis because of how different demographically the generations were. Um, but then more recently, like the Race to Lead initiative really is the primary focus of our leadership uh, research, facilitation, um, all of that work. And then the third area of work is a, a sort of broad umbrella uh, related to movement building. And we see actually the everything feeding into the ability of nonprofit organizations to uh, be supporters of movements for progressive social change. So, um, you know, if direct service organizations are actually partnering with organizing and advocacy groups, that, that then helps build a network of organizations that are supporting movements. If the leadership of our organizations reflects the communities being served and lives up to the values that we uh, espouse in the world around democracy, around voice and power, and that gets reflected inside of our organizations as well, that also serves to help our organizations be better partners in building movements for the kind of change we want to see in this country. So those are the three main areas of focus. All right, well, let's let's talk about Race to Lead. Uh, again, a report that I reference often and that, um, that we have in our toolkit um, for our racial equity work. It's just an invaluable document, so thank you very much. It, it, it continues to be very, very helpful. And, and of course, we also, um, in our next section, we'll talk a little bit about the recently released Women of Color report. But let's talk about the context for Race to Lead so that people can understand why this is such a very important resource for those of us who work with or in nonprofits. So I, the context is that this is actually a long story. This has been in the works for years. So. Um, we released the Race to Lead report in the summer of 2017, but that report was based on a national survey that we did in the summer of 2016. Uh, and we did that survey with very limited funding and support from foundations. It was just something we felt we needed to do, but we started having conversations and thinking about what would be powerful questions to ask the field the year before. And the reason that this journey uh, for BMP to really focus on race and leadership uh, started was because I think it was like the spring of 2014 at one of our meetings uh, with our um, project team, our advisory board. Um, the majority of the folks on that team are people of color in the non working in the nonprofit sector. And we heard from two longtime leaders uh, in leading organizations in um, cities that are majority people of color that they were seeing more white leaders in the nonprofit sector in their hometowns. And we thought, oh, that's interesting. Seems counterintuitive. What might be going on? Um, and then we started just having conversations with people and asking that question. What are you seeing? What do you think are the trends? How would we know what the trends are? Um, and so it just became very clear that there was both a lack of data uh, what data we did have about race and leadership and diversity in the nonprofit sector was generally showing that nothing was changing uh, in the nonprofit field, which was a concern. And then we were hearing anecdotally that, oh, well, actually things are getting worse and there are fewer organizations led by people of color. That was the hunch that we were hearing. And we hear that a lot in a majority people of color cities, and yet it's hard for the data to prove that at this point. Um, but all of that is why we launched this survey and this initiative that we call Race to Lead. 
So I just want to give the full name of the report, Race to Lead, Confronting the Nonprofit Racial Leadership Gap. And the report that we'll talk about in our second half is Race to Lead, Women of Color in the Nonprofit Sector. And also in the first report, uh, under the umbrella of Race to Lead, you also have a section that is dedicated to the LGBTQ community. And why was that important to include as well? Sure. Well, so as a um, gay black man, I was interested in what the um, what the research was going to show, uh, and so we want really wanted to pay attention to that intersection. Uh, and so the first report looked at the data overall. We had four thousand plus people from across the country participate in the survey effort in the summer of twenty sixteen. Sean, and, let me let me stop you for a moment. How did yeah. you get people to participate? We do data research oh. and data collection here. So I'm just curious to know what were some of the strategies you used to gather that number of respondents? Well, here's where our background in organizing helps. because Absolutely, we exactly. As, we treated it as a campaign. We knew when we were going to launch the survey and we worked backwards from there. And for a full six months before launching the survey, we did relationship building with some key organizations and we leveraged relationships that we had with key organizations with big networks and got them on board with being distribution partners. Um, and they were distribution partners because they cared about the issue. Uh, they were distribution par partners because they had reach into the nonprofit world and had a lot of connections to particularly people of color working in the nonprofit sector. Um, so that's I, I really think that it was about distribution partners and then uh, the social media campaign ended up going in a way viral to the extent that anything goes viral when the universe is people working in the nonprofit sector. <laughs> but I do think that what happened was a lot of people took the survey and said, oh, hey, my friend who works at this other organization, you should right. be taking the survey too. Right, right. That's often how it happens. We collected uh, for the LGBT uh, community needs assessment that we did in, in partnership with the Chicago Community Trust, we collected about 2,000 responses in 11 weeks. And let me just say, as you can imagine, we were really moving out yeah. and social media, we used it like we've never, we've never used it before. I, I, I can just honestly say that I don't need to see another, um, another GIF or meme with my face in it, but it, you know, <laughs> it, it, whatever works, right. To get yeah. those surveys and, uh, data cards in. So, yeah. okay, let's talk about the different sections of the report and, and let's focus on just a couple of highlights, um, that you think, have been particularly telling. And here's the thing that I always find when I read a report like this. I don't know that the information is so surprising as it is. I'm so happy to have it as a, uh, a qualified sort of data uh, source mm -hmm. because we all know that we have these anecdotal stories, right? That we can stand around and talk about, but we need hard data. And this is what you've given us. So I, again, I just really appreciate that we have this document um, and the other companion studies as well. How is the report organized for folks who, who think maybe this is something we can use in our organization or we can use it in our, in our grant, you know, proposals, things of that nature? Sure. So the um, initial report, the main report, Race to Lead, Confronting the Nonprofit Racial Leadership Gap, is structured um, to initially just provide people with some information about the demographics of the sample. Um, but then it walks people through some key findings from the data that I think we elevated those findings because we thought it was important to um, really challenge the narrative about what uh, was required to support the leadership of people of color in the sector. And uh, we wanted to very clearly state that 
what that the reason for the racial leadership gap is not about uh, any gap in skills or readiness on the part of people of color. And so we had to dispel some of those myths by showing in all of these ways that the that there were not gaps between uh, respondents of color and white respondents in terms of education, number of years in the sector, what kind of training they've been receiving. Those sorts of things cannot explain the huge gap that we see and the uh, and the small numbers, the small proportion of nonprofit organizations that are led by people of color. So then what we did is looked at what the perceptions were about the underlying causes of the racial leadership gap. And what the data showed is that people of color in particular have an awareness that there are structural barriers to their advancement, that the barriers to their advancement are not about their skills, the barriers to their advancement are structures like the fact that the whiteness of nonprofit boards leads to barriers in terms of who is recognized as a leader, particularly since the boards have the primary responsibility for hiring and firing CEOs and executive directors. So, you know, that was one key finding that we knew was backed up by a lot of um, qualitative data that we were also getting from focus groups. When you think about the initial statistics that you were you were finding and 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 think about the themes that you were again pulling from the data did you ever have a concern that there might be um i don't know that people might not believe that it really was not about being prepared that it was not about not having the interest or aspiration did you think that people were going to believe what the data was saying uh i I thought some people would believe what the data was saying because the data was saying what so many people had been right. saying for of a long color. time. Right, the people of color, <laughs> yes. we know that it's true, uh, but I'm talking about the broader majority population, uh, perhaps. Um, right? <laughs> you know, I think that, um, I, you know, after the report was out, we did a lot of speaking around the country at nonprofit conferences. And I think that in general, people, um, you know, there certainly were questions about like the validity of the data, how is the sample big enough to draw any of these conclusions? All of those things. And, you know, there's some things that I can acknowledge are going to be limitations of any survey effort, um, particularly at the national level. And I also had to, at some point, say to people, these are, they were getting very different perceptions and reactions to when we present the data. One reaction is, well, duh, what were you expecting the data to show you? And the other reaction was, are you sure? Uh, let me dig into the methodology a little bit more. And, you know, I had to just say at presentations, like, why do you think that we're getting these two contrasting reactions and who's on which side? Um, and it was an effective way to call the question before I opened up any Q&A. <laughs> um, because I do think that people had to be forced to think about, well, why is it that I feel the need to interrogate the methodology as opposed to taking yes. at face yes. value what the conclusions That's are right. from the data? That's right. Oh, my goodness. Absolutely. And let me just ask this question, because when we do our racial equity work, we are very clear that there's some information that we want white folks to deliver to other white folks, without a doubt. And I'm wondering if you have noticed a difference in reactions to the data and how it's received, depending on if you and Francis are 
are presenting together or France is presenting without you. We had you in Chicago last fall at the Axelson Center for Nonprofit Management uh, DEI conference. And it was a great way to start the day because you gave this extraordinary frame of this is where we are in nonprofits. This is where we are with um, folks of color and their leadership. And then we had Fund the People come in at lunch and talk about foundations responsibility and um, opportunities to work with nonprofits to really develop that bench around talent investment. So have you noticed any any difference in terms of who's presenting the data on behalf of Building Movement Project? That's just a, yes. I'm just curious about that. Yes, I mean, it was one of those things where because um, the response to the report was so um, beyond what we expected, we were catching up to um, be able to do respond to all the requests for speaking. And so it took maybe three months before Francis and I were actually comparing notes about what kind of questions were coming up. And, um, you know, then we did a presentation together and it was one of those moments where it, it just became so clear how who's delivering the information actually does make a difference because, you know, we were presenting together and the question was directed to me by a white man so who knows whether it was about, you know, male to male, like wanting to interrogate the data or whether it was white person questioning a person of color. But it was one of those moments where I think for Frances, she saw how different the reaction can be uh, that, she, that I was getting. But then I also started to understand from her how the different reaction that she was getting, particularly the um, sense of frustration that we were hearing from people of color, like, why do we need you to produce this data to prove our lived experience? And I don't think that it, I got that critique as well, but I don't think it was communicated with the same emotional valence. Absolutely. So, right, that Francis received yeah. it. I can, I can see why that would be the case. And so how do you respond to that in terms of you, of, of there being a partnership with the two of you, differences in race and age, how, how do you talk about the work and why it's been important for both of you to work on this report? Um, you know, I think that we, uh, we have honest conversations internally. We also sometimes have honest conversations with organizations that are inviting us to speak about, well, who do you want to come deliver this message? Uh, because we have different people who can deliver the same content, but the message will be different based on who is delivering it. So I think being able to just have those kind of honest and candid conversations internally, uh, as well as with partners who are inviting us to speak and present has been really useful. Well, again, it sounds very similar to the strategies we employ when we're, we're conducting our racial equity work. As I said, we, we know that uh, there's some messages that are going to be heard very very differently um, if a person of color is delivering it than if a, a white person is talking to other white people. And we absolutely, to your point, take that into consideration uh, depending on the group that we're, we're going to be working with. We just have to keep that in mind you because, as you know, uh, the intent uh, has to be addressed with regard to the impact. And that is something that we, we see all the time in our work. So we're going to take a short break. You're listening to Gathering Ground and our Guest today is Sean Thomas Breitfeld, who is the co-director of the Building Movement Project. When we come back, we're going to talk about the recently released Women of Color report um, that is also getting lots of attention. It's been very important, and again, some of the work that we're doing at Morton Group. This is Gathering Ground. We'll be right back. Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for joining me on Gathering Ground. We want to hear from you. If you have any questions about 
your work in nonprofits, or any of the topics that we've covered here on Gathering Ground, send them on in. Send them to mary at gatheringgroundpodcast.com. That's mary at gatheringgroundpodcast, all one word, dot com. We look forward to hearing from you. Welcome back. I'm Mary Morton, and you're listening to Gathering Ground, a semi-weekly podcast featuring conversations about work in the nonprofit, about philanthropy, diversity, racial equity, and inclusion. In this episode, we are joined by Sean Thomas Breitfeld, co-director of the Building Movement Project. And when we left off, we were talking about race to lead, confronting the nonprofit racial leadership gap. And now we're going to turn to the new report that's been out, I think, for maybe just about a month or so, Race to Lead, Women of Color in the Nonprofit Sector. And Sean, let's talk about the author of the report and why you decided to focus on women of color. Yeah, so... um... The, this newest report was written by our senior research associate, Ofranima View, who uh, is a brilliant researcher. Uh, she's currently also working on her PhD at the New School, and uh, we also both uh, graduated from NYU. Uh, so, you know, uh, she's got a lot of experience and uh, amazing um, credentials and experience that she brought to bear on uh, this research project. Um, you know, I think that the reason for the report was that as Francis and I were going around the country presenting on the race to lead data, so again, we had the initial national level report, then we had the report looking at the LGBT subsample. And so logically, there was the question, well, is there going to be something looking at women of color in particular? And um, the answer was yes. I certainly had the aspiration to do it. Uh, and uh, as uh, you know, a leadership team of a <laughs> black man and a white woman, it seemed like um, there was there would be some limitations on um, how effective we would be as the authors of that report. So uh, we're really happy to have been able to um, uh, recruit <laughs> Ofranima to join the Building Movement Project. Uh, and this was the first big um, piece of research that she did after she joined the team. So I think what really stood out from the data uh, when we looked at uh, how to dis start disaggregating on the basis of both race and gender was that um, there were some striking uh, differences between how women of color were responding to some questions about their own experience in organizations, but also their perceptions uh, compared to men of color, compared to white women, and then compared to white men. And so we really wanted to be able to unpack some of that. And I think what also started to come up and we were, had been hearing it in um, the presentations around the country was some level of discomfort with uh, using um, people of color as an umbrella category, as a catch-all. And I think that the, part of the reason that I think that was coming up in particular from women was that the racialized stereotypes that are applied to uh, women are so vastly different. Um, and so uh, there's, sure, so there's the stereotype of the angry black woman, which is very different from the stereotype of the submissive Asian woman. Um, and so there were questions being raised and uh, by people that we were presenting to about the utility of people of color as, a, uh, as an umbrella category. Um, particularly if we're going to be looking at uh, the combination of race and gender 
uh, in a future report. And uh, Ofranima also really shared that perspective and was pushing that perspective that we needed to be able to do more disaggregation. And it was created some really interesting and sometimes difficult um, conversations internally because I had pushed for us to analyze the data on the basis of white versus people of color because I wanted to keep the attention focused on the outsized power that white people hold in the nonprofit sector. And I worried that um, having, having all of the data split across all of the racial ethnic groups um, would make it harder to see what the trends were and would dilute um, the power of the data and the storyline about the outsized power of, of whites in the sector. Um, and so what became clear, though, is that we, for this report, we needed to figure out a way to do both things. And so that's why the report is really structured in two halves. So the first half of the report really looks at a lot of data, um, a lot of the numbers, um, and again, largely looking at the four main categories of women of color, men of color, white women, and white men. And what are the trends in terms of the differing responses there? But then there's a whole second section, a second half of the report that digs into the particular experiences that people reported having on the basis of being Black women or Latinas or Asian women or trans women of color or Native American women. And so that uh, was why it's a much longer report, um, but I think it's also a much richer report because uh, we were able to figure out a way to do both things. Well, let's talk about some of the actual stats that you find in the report. So in this report, um, it looks like you had, again, about 4,000 respondents. Is that correct? Yeah. So this report is based on the same survey from 2016, where 4,000 people from across the nonprofit sector nationally responded to the survey. So this is just uh, looking at that same data that we had reported in the other race to lead reports, but, uh, but disaggregating the data in different ways. Exactly. The last piece that I want to read with regard to the um, some of the data you found is that the social landscape within nonprofit organizations can create conditions that undermine the leadership of women of color. That absolutely is in sync with information that I hear as an executive coach from women of color, that I hear when I'm talking to women of color who are candidates, that I'm, I'm hearing when we're doing workshops in organizations or when we're helping organizations do succession planning. When we ask why someone is leaving an organization or why someone has decided not to stay with the potential for advancement, many times they will, women will say to me, I simply am not going to be able to advance in this environment. I know that. And I've decided that I'm going to move on. I would assume these are stories that you've heard as well. And do people come to you with some sort of ask for advice? Uh, should I should I leave the organization? Should I try to work through some of these barriers? Or should I just move on to the next to the next gig, if you will? <clears throat> yes. So I definitely uh, get asked questions that are sort of in the advise me or what what's your take. And I think oftentimes what I was hearing, um, particularly in conversations with women of color at conferences was just like, people just sharing their stories. I think the data from the race to lead research was so validating of people's lived experience that they wanted to then share more or provide more context or provide a nuanced perspective on something that the reports were highlighting. And I think that that's part of what really helped make clear to us as an organization that this report on women of color was both 
necessary, um, but also would have a really wide audience um, because there was so much um, interest and hunger in having these conversations or surfacing some of these issues. Um, in terms of the elements that you raised about the findings, you know, I think that what stood out to us uh, when we started looking at the data was this piece around education being useful and necessary, but still not sufficient to overcome systemic barriers, right? And I think that um, the reason that's important for us to lift up is we had some indications of this from the other, uh, from the first report as well, and from focus groups that we had done. But and I remember having a conversation with a young leader um, out in uh, Washington State who, their story was very similar to mine. You know, they felt like the way that they were going to be able to advance in the sector, not necessarily in their organization, but in the sector, was to get those extra letters after their name. So they went and got that MPA, or I don't remember what uh, what the degree was, uh, just like I had. And then they felt like all they really got was a lot of debt um, for, you know, but they weren't able to um, parlay that degree into any kind of new or differing opportunities than they felt like they were getting before. Um, and, you know, I don't think that that's the universal experience. That certainly wasn't my experience when I finished my master's program. But, um, you know, it was striking to hear that. And then the, the additional burden then of having taken on that debt, uh, which then, again, further limits what people can think of as options or pathways to leadership, because I think oftentimes if someone is frustrated in their organization or has an idea that they can't push inside of a current system, the solution may be to create your own project or organization or find a fiscal sponsor to build your own thing, which may not be a possibility um, for a lot of genius that is out there um, from people from communities who have ideas about how to build programs that are going to actually address the needs in their communities because they have to stay in their jobs because they don't have the same kind exactly. of flexibility financially that others might have to be exactly. innovative or to be uh, entrepreneurial. And I had a similar experience. I mean, certainly when I attended college, I'm a radio and television uh, communications major. And when it was time for an internship, all of my, um, friends were going into full-time 40-hour internships in a television station, which I could not do because I was working. And there was just no way around that. Either you came for the 40 hours or you could not do an internship at a television station. And so I, being very um, sort of, you know, just really taking, um, seeing what was around me and taking stock and the opportunities that I could make happen, I set up an independent study with a local producer where I got the experience that I needed and I also then had the ability to to continue working part-time and I understand that that is something that many students may not feel they have the wherewithal to do or may think they can do but there are those opportunities because we know that for most young folks um, who are in school trying to finish up college they're not getting internships that provide a stipend or any kind of assistance and therefore they just can't do it and so i think that that makes a lot of sense um i want to make sure that we before we talk we turn to some of our questions from some of our listeners i want to make sure that we talk about the call to action 
uh, in this report. I think it's very important that we we leave uh, listeners with some sense that um, there there are ways that we can change this. This is not the way it has to be. And so I want to focus on some of the items that you put in the the summary section of the report with regard to systems change, organizational change, and individual support. So let's talk a little bit about the call to action um, in the Women of Color report. Sure. So um, the idea of there being multiple levers that should be um, part of our strategies for making change was a really important one to lift up. And so we wanted to have some that are, were at targeting systems uh, and so that's why this piece around leveraging the power of philanthropy to uh, direct more funding to organizations that are already led by women of color uh, is an important strategy, uh, in addition to ensuring that foundations are using the power that they have with current grantees that may, not, that may be white dominant or white led organizations to also diversify their organizations and be supportive of the leadership of people of color. Um, the other thing that Ofranoma added uh, and really was pushing for is that we have to be thinking about the sector as supporting anti-discrimination laws. You know, the, 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 unfortunately, the, um, at the national level, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission has really been undermined for decades. Um, and so, you know, as, an, as a sector that is pushing for equity and opportunity, uh, we should be sort of pushing for the government that, you know, that system to be enforcing the laws as they currently stand uh, and or making the anti-discrimination laws even better, even if that and causes some difficult conversations for organizations internally around how they're going to live up to uh, those goals uh, and that, that vision for what the market should look like, that also should be true of what the nonprofit sector and system should look like. Mm-hmm. So you so systems work is absolutely part of this and and of course raising up this idea that we need foundations to support talent investment strategies right again sort of pulling up right alongside fund the people's work it is so important that we have investment in individuals and that in particular we invest in in folks of color one of the things that we've noticed in some of our our work is that and, and I'm sure you know about this as well, is that uh, some funders will not fund during a leadership transition. And what we see is that organizations are really now um, trying to be more conscious and conscientious about diversifying their executive team. And so for in some organizations, it will be the first time that a leader of color is in the space. And what we are, we're seeing is that those leaders of color are not getting the support they need. There's this sort of... Um, sort of wait and see attitude that some foundations um, will will have that does not support this person in their first one or two years of of leadership. And so that's really important, I think, in terms of, of the advocacy work that needs to be done. We have to get that message out more and more. And, and I love the piece about being an advocate for enforcement of anti-discrimination laws. I think that there's often this separation around funding and advocacy. And to your point, it makes perfect sense that we have uh, some of our foundations involved in that work. The other uh, two items that you mentioned in the call to action, or the two sections, are organizational change, right? How do you address internal biases? And making sure that we pay women of color fairly and create a transparency around pay scales to expose discrimination. So certainly in the Pacific Northwest, we've seen a lot of work, a lot of, I should say, executive searches moving toward uh, actually uh, putting the salary 
on the job description, right? So that people understand what you're walking into. And it doesn't happen as often in an executive search as it would be for anything that is actually lower than the CEO or ED, because as you know, in most cases, you can get that information off of the, off of a, uh, a guide star document, for instance. However, there is certainly a move toward that. And something that we practice for many, many years is that we will not ask any candidate who's applying for a position what their uh, past salary history has been because we know that women and people of color in general have been underpaid and we in no way want the client to think it makes sense then to offer this person less than. So that's something we've been trying to do as a group that does carry out executive searches. Yeah. Are there other ways that you've seen groups work around the organizational change piece? Yeah, I, I think that there are a whole host of good HR practices that organizations can put in place that can uh, correct for biases, right? So the fact is that people have biases, right? So it's important to recognize that that is the case uh, so that then once, <laughs> once that is recognized, you can then create strategies to neutralize them. Um, and so whether it's uh, what, what, uh, what an organization chooses to, or what the recruiter chooses to um, redact from resumes, for instance, so that people aren't seeing the name or the college that people went to. Uh, those are the kind of strategies or hacks that organizations are borrowing, I think, from the corporate world to try to have there be a little less bias in the hiring recruitment processes. Um, I think another interesting thing that the um, research really surfaced was how um, how laden with bias the performance evaluation system can be, even when it is um, even when it's happening on a regular basis or things like that. And so, th what really came through from uh, I think the focus groups that Afronima did and the interviews um, that she had with women of color were that the quality of feedback really also matters uh, and that it's important that the feedback be about how to uh, coach someone on how to perform better, um, not just the sort of feedback that is uh, tearing people down, which I think has been what people have been experienced or the kind of feedback that makes people feel like they're being policed or micromanaged. And so those are the sorts of things where also um, we think that bias is part of what's happening or what part of what's playing out in those complicated or difficult uh, dynamics between managers and the people they supervise. And then the last piece, which I think is, is as important, if not more important, is individual support. And some of the suggestions uh, in the report include creating a peer support affinity groups for women of color. And that's something that, of course, we work with our groups on, um, whether they're white ally or white accomplice groups and people of color groups. Often, when people are not used to hearing about affinity groups and know that they can be a useful tool, there's some pushback and concern that, oh, this is going to create greater division. And as you may know, there's been a move in corporate in the last couple of years to do away with employee resource groups because they think that everyone should be talking about the issues all together. And I, I will just say, and I'd love to hear your opinion, that I fundamentally disagree with that because what we know from doing this work as people of color is that when we get in a room with white folks talking about race, we end up doing all the work or most of the work. And so an affinity group is really important for a variety of reasons for both folks of color or whatever the affinity 
right, defining uh, indicator might be, right? It could be LGBTQ. It could be um, a women's group. Um, it could be a Latinx group. Whatever the case may be, they they serve a purpose. However, I think they have been fundamentally understood when people say, we just don't need them. We need to get everybody in the room talking uh, together. So here's what I'd say about the importance of affinity groups. Uh, I think that it's important for organizations to be able to see the value of both strategies. So affinity groups matter and having times where everyone comes together to have these conversations also matters. And so it's about being able to distinguish between the idea of separation and disconnection. So there may be times where it's important to separate to have a conversation with people with a similar lived experience where there doesn't have to be as much work and emotional labor and translation happening. Um, and those kind of, that, so separation for that purpose can be very useful, but that's not the same thing as disconnection. And so I think that's the balancing act that organizational managers have to be able to work through is how to allow for separation uh, and value it um, and also maintain a sense of connection and, and uh, elevate the importance of also being able to have a conversation that everyone is a part of because we're not going to be able to move an organizational culture to be more inclusive if it, we just are letting people of color sort of caucus on their own, but nothing exactly. ever changes in terms of the way that the majority of the staff engage with those folks. Exactly. And I think what I was hearing from some of the corporate groups was that they just felt that it was time to really focus on the inclusion piece um, and, and, and to move, move beyond understanding the value in groups meeting um, because they have shared live, lived experiences. And so to your point, it is both, it is both and. So just one question about what your focus will be uh, in 2019 for the Building Movement Project before we move into some listener questions. Sean, what, what's, what's uh, in the pipeline for 2019? So uh, there's a lot in the pipeline. Um, so the next, there is one more report that's going to come out in the Race to Lead series based on the data that we collected in 2016. And that is going to look at the subsample of respondents who were already in the top leadership roles in their organization. So nonprofit CEOs and executive directors. And there are some su not surprising differences in terms of what kind of organizations people are leading. And then it leads to differences in budget, salary, all of those things. But what was striking for us was that fully half of the people of color in our sample who were in the CEO or executive director role reported that their organization was an identity-based organization. So an organization that centers and focuses on uh, communities of color, immigrant communities, um, or LGBT uh, or feminist organizations. And so what that raises for me, at least as a question, even though that's the world that I came out of was all working for, always working for identity-based organizations, is as a sector, are we actually opening up opportunity or is the opportunity to lead just in a very um, small um, small part of the nonprofit sector? And I feel like that's an important question for us to wrestle with uh, as a sector and how to value and assert that those organizations, given that that's where the leaders of color are, then also need more support financially and more access to resources and more visibility. And how do we also um, push strategies that can help to diversify the other parts of the nonprofit sector where 
people of color are not having the opportunity to build leadership skills or move into top leadership roles. So that's the next report. And then this summer, we're going to resurvey. So we did the survey in 2016. We're going to do it again in 2019. So if you are hearing about this uh, survey for the first time uh, through this podcast, now you know. So look out for uh, tweets and emails and Facebook posts and everything that's going to be happening this summer in June and July related to um, the, the nonprofits, uh, nonprofit race to lead uh, survey that we're going to relaunch this summer. The other thing that we're doing in addition to all of that <laughs> is- um, As though that were not enough. That's, that's actually enough, As though Sean. that were not enough, uh, <laughs> is we are uh, adapting or we're, we're building an organizational assessment. So one of the things that we heard when we first did the survey was that, oh, there's some questions in here that could be good assessment questions for organizational leaders. Um, and we resisted the idea a little just because it seemed like a really big undertaking. But um, when we looked at the range of assessments that are out there, um, we, had, we had a few thoughts about sort of what the, what the current status of what's available is and where we might make an intervention. So. One observation was that a lot of the assessments that are free or low cost are assessments that are geared to the nonprofit leader themselves and are more inventories of, do you have this policy in place? If not, why not? What could you be doing? Like those sorts of things to push organizational leaders to think critically about the systems that are in place. That's great. That's important. We think that that needs to, that organizations need that. What we thought was missing, though, from the equation was that there, there were not many assessments that really lifted up or collected the voice of individual staff people uh, related to their own lived experience as uh, people working in the organization. And so the product that we're developing is going to, our hope is that it's going to do both things. It's going to both aggregate the responses of staff people uh, and use that data to provide some insights for organizational leaders about what does the current landscape actually look like in your organization beyond what policies or practices are in place. And then based on that, what clues might it give the organizational change agents around what strategies they should be pursuing going forward. And so that's the other really big project that we're currently in um, a beta testing mode for the full year. This whole year is gonna be research and development related to that assessment. But we'll be looking for partners this summer and in the fall to um, be pilot testers of that assessment. Well, that all sounds wonderful and it all sounds very much needed. Uh, please keep us in mind in Chicago. We certainly will want to help you get the word out about the next round of the uh, Race to Lead report. So you did this prior to November of 2016, is that correct? Yes. I okay. mean, that's the other thing. I mean, the yeah. world it's, has changed so that's, much. That's exactly right. Survey. Yeah, exactly. So it makes it will be very interesting to see um, what the data uh, shows us in this next round. So again, keep us in mind if we can help get the word out. We would love to do that because we understand why it's important to, to collect this data. So again, thank you so much, Sean. Thank you for the ex extraordinary work that you're doing with Francis at uh, Building Movement Project. It's been wonderful speaking with you. And of course, before we let you go, we're going to have you at least answer one or two questions from listeners. And so okay. the first question 
is from uh, Kim from New York City, um, who says, I work at a philanthropic advisory organization, and we are really trying to do better with our diversity and racial equity and inclusion work. I am one of two women of color at the organization, and I feel like a lot of responsibility of moving the work forward has fallen to us, and that doesn't feel great. My supervisor is receptive and is making small changes, but it feels lonely to be the only one or the only two working on it. Also, when we talk as an organization about the progress made, we're never given credit. Do you have any ideas about how to address this with leadership or even how to keep doing this work when this is how we're feeling? Hmm. Well, I think the first thing that the person should know is that that is such a common story um, and that it is actually reflected in the data that we collected in the, through the survey, because I think what happens oftentimes in organizations when, the, uh, when they decide to um, try to move the dial on their race equity journey, that they go to the people who are either raising the issues, who may be people of color, or the people who um, they think based on their lived experience, are, have some special insight into how to make uh, organizations less racist, frankly. Um, and so th what that ends up meaning is that organizations often put the burden of fixing these problems on staff of color. And uh, so that added burden is a problem that is widespread. Um, and I think that people should uh, be able to and willing to uh, name it as an added burden. Um, and that, and if, if that's going to be a part of the responsibility that people have is to manage some of those internal dynamics, then um, people should also be able to ask like, well, what is going to be taken off of my plate uh, as far as other work responsibilities so that I can do this in a serious way and so that it can be clear that this is a part of my job and responsibility. Um, so I think those are the sorts of strategies that um, people can take. I think the first thing is just to name what's happening and bring it to the attention of people in charge, because I think they may just be thinking, oh, well, you've raised this issue, so you want to take this on. And yes, people would want to take these issues on, but uh, you know, it, change initiatives don't often move very quickly if the if there isn't some clear indication that leadership is backing that change and so what it can end up doing is leading to uh, the people of color who are agitating or pushing for change being even further marginalized uh, by being sort of tasked with taking on the responsibility absolutely so the takeaways here and this is again uh sometimes when working with groups around their racial equity or DEI plan, we also offer coaching just so that we can talk to leadership and other staff who are involved in the work so they can think about how they're positioning the work and, and how the work is getting done to your point, because often somebody is doing this work in addition to their other responsibilities. And there's been no consideration given to this is an enormous lift for an individual to make. So all really good ideas. Um, and the last question we wanna hear, we wanna, um, okay, I'm gonna start that again. We'll just edit that out. <laughs> um, we're gonna have one more question. And this is from Julie, who's in Philadelphia. I am a new executive director at a 30 year old organization and I was preceded by the founder. The staff of 38 is diverse enough to warrant one to three affinity groups, but I don't know where to start. Any ideas would be appreciated. So I might start 
um, and here's where the conversation we were having earlier about affinity group versus everybody coming together might actually be a right. helpful, like it might actually be helpful to start with everyone coming together everyone. to, to right. ask exactly. the question mm -hmm. uh, in mm -hmm. a shared way publicly so that it's clear from to everybody that this is something that you as the executive director are taking seriously and want to uh, move forward, move the organization forward on. And that one strategy to pursue could be affinity groups. It doesn't have to be the only strategy, but if affinity groups are going to happen, then you know it needs to be clear to everybody that that is fully supported by the leadership of the organization, and that people who are going to be then organizing and facilitating those those affinity group meetings are going to be fully supported and backed in doing that as well, and that the that they will be empowered to, to produce or deliver to the organization some recommendations or requests around how the organization might change to address some of the issues that surface through the affinity group. But it's one of those cases where as a new leader, I think you have a real opportunity to start things off and saying very clearly from the top of the organizational hierarchy that this is something that matters uh, and you want guidance and partnership from the rest of the staff and figuring out in what way, uh, what way the whole organization wants to move forward. I agree with all of that. And I would also say that if you're the new leader, it may be an opportunity to do some kind of racial equity or DEI assessment to get the temp to take the temperature um, of the organization. So you, you have some understanding of even if folks have shared understanding of terminology, which we find people often don't, they're using terms that they've heard someone else use, but they really don't understand what they mean. So even the term affinity group may be something that people don't understand really why would you want one and 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 you know what are we going to get out of coming together in these different kinds of groups and so to your point when you come in as a new staff person you can say from the very beginning right you can say this work this kind of work is important to me and therefore we're going to elevate these conversations we're going to do an assessment we might have a training of some sort again to just get everybody at least um, closer to having an understanding of what the work could look like. And then to your point of having a group meeting with all staff so that everyone can hear uh, the feedback. I think it's really important when we collect data that we give people some, uh, actually tell people what we've collected and what we've learned. That's really important. And we're, we're particularly um, serious about that at Morton Group. When we go into different communities to collect data, we always go back to those communities to say, this is what we learned. This is how it might be helpful to you in the work that you're doing. It's it's very important. And so, um, again, getting um, an assessment in place, taking the temperature of where people are on the issue, I think are, are really important steps uh, to take if you're going to uh, dig into this work uh, as a new executive director. So to both our uh, listeners, uh, to Kim and to Julie, thanks so much for those questions. And once again, we want to thank Sean Thomas Breitfeld for being with us today. Again, Sean is the co-director of the Building Movement Project. And we've had an extraordinary opportunity to hear about some of their work. I wanna direct you to their website at buildingmovement.org. They have a lot of exciting initiatives that will be happening in 2019. You won't want to miss them. Please sign up for their newsletter so you'll get their tweets and you'll know when they're rolling out another survey that we want you all to participate in. It's really important that we take the opportunity to participate in survey data collection. 
in focus groups. This is how we make sure that the issues that are important in nonprofit, in the sector overall, and in particular to people of color are going to be heard and lifted up. So again, Sean, thank you so much for joining us today. And uh, I know we will be in touch. I know our paths will continue to cross. And everyone, this has been Gathering Ground. I'm Mary Morton. Until next time. <laughs>